I'm going to be reading uh, James 1, 1 through 4, and it's... Um, it's, it's a really short piece, but it's really powerful. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Well, welcome everybody. Um, if you're coming here for the first time, you're walking at a good time. We're starting a new series in the book of James that will kind of carry us up to Easter and through Easter. Um, and like many things, this is a series that just came as I've been working out my faith in my own life and uh, came to the book of James one night and just realized like, I really, really, really need this. And so if I need it this badly, I bet there's a lot of other people uh, in this church who could really use this very practical wisdom. And so I'm calling this series, James, a handbook for wholeness because James is really concerned with getting us whole. That's what this text at the beginning talks about when he says, let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I mean, how many of us in life are on a journey to wholeness? We're constantly thinking about why is there a void inside of me? Why is there something that's just a deep hunger? And no matter what good thing I go after, at the end, I get what I thought I wanted and I still feel hungry. Something in me is still not satisfied. There's still a yearning. There's still a piece of me that desires to be whole and complete. And that's what James is very, very aware of. And he says, hey, guess what? I've got some really practical wisdom for you in that. And he says this line, count it all joy. He's talking to the church. James is probably a leader of the church. We actually don't know which James this is. Was it Jesus's brother? Was it one of the apostles? But he says, that doesn't matter. I am a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the church and I'm telling you the first thing I'm saying is you need to count it up differently. You need to count up what's happening differently and you need to count it as joy. So I heard this this week and I think this gets to the bottom of what James is after. I heard a pastor say the facts in our life get in the way of seeing the truth of our life. The facts get in the way of the truth. Now, you might go, wait, the facts are the truth, John. But we read the facts of our life according to our own narrative, according to our own hurt, according to our own baggage, according to all of our own things, and we count it up. What? Do we count it up as joy when we face trials? No, we count it up as being a victim. We count it up as pain. We count it up as blame. We count it up as all sorts of different things. And when we go through trials and we get sidelined and we get hurt, do we count it up as joy? Or do the facts of our life get in the way of seeing the truth of our life? 
because James is after truth because he's after wholeness. And he says, hey, actually, all of these things are tests of your faith. These are all tests of your faith. If you know the right answer, but you don't understand how all of this could be, then you need to work this out. Your life is about working out the reality in your head of your faith with what's actually happening and translating that by the truth so that you can get your facts to line up with God's reality. So you can be a good interpreter. But what we tend to do when we read, I've read this passage many, many times, and this is what it feels like. How many of you, I don't know if any of you grew up with Calvin Hobbes like I did, but man, this is like very formational part of my upbringing. All right. I knew it, right? It's freezing in here. Why can't we crank up the thermostat? Consuming less fuel is better for the environment and it saves money. Oh, and being cold builds character. I knew it. <laughs> There's all of this repeating theme in Calvin Hobbes where his dad always says, hey, that suffering that you're having, guess what? That builds character. And we, in our hearts, we say to God, we go, I knew it. I knew it, right? You're just trying to get me to build character. But actually, I'm suffering and I'm frustrated. So what we see is what we see is what Calvin sees. We see that character building is the absence of fun, right? Which is actually the opposite of what James is saying, right? Character building is just like there can be no fun if it builds character. So we need to change the way we're seeing everything, actually, as a Christian. When we encounter the Christian faith, we have to count it all up differently. We need to translate the experiences of our life through the truth of Jesus into a pathway to joy. That means that our faith is actually creating a new system of meaning for us so that we can experience joy within chaos because this life is chaos, right? This life is God's plan gone awry with so many different humans interpreting it in so many different ways that it's just confusion. And God brings himself back into the story over and over again to straighten things out and show us a path forward. He is the joy that comes in to the chaos. So your life ain't changing, but James is going to find wholeness for you amidst the chaos. And he says to be holy Christian is to find fulfillment in Jesus who never leaves you or forsakes you. Thus, to be fully Christian is to become whole. The character we develop, the wholeness, the joy is within the tears. It's within the pain. It's within the happiness. It's within the play. And what it is, is it's building up our maturity. And we can only do that if we have a singular aim, right? If we have a singular aim, we'll get to that in a second. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James has a singular aim, and he starts it out right at the beginning. He says, this is what I'm about. This is who I serve. This is where I'm pointing. Now that word servant is also in some of your Bibles called a slave to God, which isn't as much fun to read. Uh, 
It comes from the Greek word doulos, which means, which harks back to many, many people in the biblical story. Abraham was a doulos. Moses was a doulos. Joshua was a doulos. Job was a doulos. These are servants. Remember in Job, over and over in the story, God calls out, and what does he say? He goes, my servant Job. See my servant Job. And in fact, in the end, in chapter 40, when Job is in absolute agony, and he's gone through, and his three friends have said, it must be something you've done. Four times, just in like a couple paragraphs, God says, no, look at my servant Job, who's gone through all of this suffering and all of this pain. And he says, that's my servant. He's gotten through because he's my servant. And we often take these bad things to note that either we are, are wrong or God is unjust. The book of Job is his friend saying, it must be something you've done. You must have sin inside of you. And that's why this is all messed up. And that's why your life is messed up. And, and Job is contending with God and saying, God, I, this is unfair. I've done everything right. What is going on? Maybe you're unjust. I don't know. I can't figure it out. This feels cruel. The end of both of those things is giving up in some way. But Job sticks with it. He contends and fights it out with God. He complains, he yells, he begs, he questions. He's steadfast, though, in staying a servant to God, a doulos who follows the master. And the master then emerges, and what does he say to Job? Where were you when I built the foundations of the earth? Where were you? You don't know. I'm the master. Let me tell you the truth so you can now interpret the facts. Let me tell you the truth. When we interpret the facts without God's truth, we miss the mark. The word for sin, as I've been told, is hata, which is Hebrew, and it means to miss the mark. So when we are shooting all of the arrows of our life and we're missing the mark, the truth of what God is after for our life, that is sin, right? But here's our problem. It's not that we can't shoot arrows close to the bullseye. I think that's actually not the problem. I think the problem is this is what we're doing. We're trying to shoot at 10 different bullseyes. Right? We're not missing the mark just because we can't figure this out. We're missing the mark because our life is full of confusion. We have so many different goals. Think about the times that you sin. The times that you sin so often are that you are after different things. You have a desire you're trying to fill. You have something in your life that you're going after and you're saying, I actually have a schizophrenic set of values. I want to have my cake and eat it too. And that's why I'm sinning, right? I want you to be my friend, but I also want to get what I want, right? I want to serve you, but actually deep down, I have a secret desire that I'm trying to fulfill and I'm going to manipulate you and then I'm going to sin, right? We're actually going after multiple different targets. And because we haven't picked one target, we look schizophrenic, we look bipolar, we sin. We make all of these, what appear to be missing the mark. 
Because we are. We're not going after the way of Jesus. We haven't declared, maybe, that we're his servant. Or we have, and then we get tempted and lured to other things. We say, you are my one target. And then we step back and all of these other things have popped up and we go, I don't know what just happened. I just, I'm so distracted. I have so many other things I want. And those cause us to deviate from the plan. James says, I am a, a slave, a doulos. And what that allows me to do is it allows me to transmit translate my life into joy. Because see, the problem is that we have one life. We have one life. In some ways, we are down to one arrow, right? We are only guaranteed the present moment. And where are we going to shoot that arrow? Megan sometimes says it's kind of morbid, but it can be helpful sometimes to put things into perspective to say, what if you died tomorrow? How would I feel about I just how would I feel about how I just behaved toward you? Right? Okay, that's kind of morbid, but the reality is like we have the moments. I mentioned a few weeks ago, we live in day-sized containers. So often we're in the past and we're in the future, thinking and scheming right? Rehearsing and anticipating, but we have this moment. We have this one arrow. Where are we going to shoot it? Do we actually believe that if we shoot the arrow into the bullseye that Jesus has for us, that our life will turn out well? Do we believe that Jesus has the keys to the good life? Because if we do, then we can throw all of the other targets away. And we can rest with assurance that we can be a servant. And it's actually true. It doesn't just build character that ends up making us miserable people that don't have any fun. But that it will actually be something that will make us complete and whole and lacking in nothing. I mean, who doesn't want that? That I would be lacking in nothing with the way of Jesus? But the reality is, even as those words come out of my mouth, my heart is fighting. My heart is fighting. My heart isn't able to fully grip that and believe it because there's other desires, there's other things that have formed who I am and they've made me confused. My heart is muddy inside because I am not translating my trials as joy. And that is a symptom that shows me that something is wrong inside. On Beth's wall this week, as I was in her house working with Carrie on the finances for our church and getting all this going, I, I looked down the hall and I go, I love that. I love that verse. And it was Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And I said, oh, wow, what do I do with my cursing heart that's inside of me? 
What do I do with my heart that actually is not desiring good for the person in front of me, that's actually harboring something in this relationship? If I am not guarding my heart, then that cursing heart is determining the course of my life. As long as I feed that heart inside of me, the course of my life is actually going to be a result of that. That I am not a servant to the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps I am a servant to myself. And what I'm going to end up with is arrows in all sorts of different targets. And it will look to Jesus like that. Because this is my life. I need to guard my heart. I need to repent. John Mark Comer, over at, well, used to be over at Bridgetown, has this line, and I love it, because it completely reframed the way I think of repentance. By the way, you'll have to get used to it. I use kind of intense language sometimes. I'm okay using the word repentance a lot. He says, repentance is rebuilding reality from the ground up. Wait a second. I thought repentance was, I'm sorry, and do you forgive me? I thought that was repentance, right? I come up to you and I say, hey, oh man, this is actually really miserable in our relationship right now and I don't want this anymore. I don't want to be happy. Can we be happy? How do I get us to be happy? I say, I'm sorry. You say you forgive me and then I can just business as usual. That's repentance, right? No, no, that's not. That's, that's not repentance. Repentance is rebuilding reality from the ground up. Repentance is saying, I realize, I thought I had one target, I've actually got three. I've got to get rid and dismantle those two, which means I've got to get rid of the desires that make me build those and put those up in my life and aim for them. I've got to do some deep work. I have to rebuild my sense of reality from the ground up. Wait, my trials do not result in a sense of joy and hope and steadfastness and a reality that if I am encountering difficulties, that these are tests that will build me into maturity and completeness. That's not how I think of reality. That's not how I think of my trials. Then I need to rebuild reality from the ground up. Proverbs 4.23, another translation. Be careful how you think. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. Whew, that is convicting to me. Be careful how you think. So many times in the past couple of weeks, I have just been tackling my thought life. Just tackling, where does my mind go? Where does my, have you ever woken up and you're like, the day's going pretty well, and then one thing happens. And it's like, oh, now I'm not okay. I am totally not okay. We call those triggers sometimes, right? There are things that happen. You see a thing on Instagram. You see a thing. You get a text message. You, uh, you hear from somebody you haven't heard from a long time. You just hear about something that has a pain response in your body. And you go, oh, now I'm thinking and I'm just spiraling. Be careful how you think. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. See, James is super duper practical. This is not condemning language, by the way. Jesus has a space in all of this for redemption, but James is saying, how you live your life really truly does matter. As a Christian, once saved, always saved, I can do whatever I want, is not the message of Jesus. But neither is it the message of Jesus that you earn it by your works. Instead, James is saying, James and Paul are kind of often put up as very different. 
Because Paul is like, justification by faith, all you need to do is believe in Jesus and you're saved. James goes, you're going to have to behave differently once you, be, once you believe in Jesus. Not because you're earning it, but because you're learning it. Right? It's going to change the way you behave. If you claim to be a slave, but you keep the 10 targets up, your life will be miserable. It will just be miserable. Because you will have a schizophrenic heart. Instead, be a doulos, a servant. This has been up on my wall. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Heart check. I've got a hard, stubborn heart. I want what I want. I need people to recognize that I'm something. My way is a good way. Get out of my life, other people. You're making me feel ashamed or guilty or whatever. Thought check, that's my stony, stubborn heart. God, I want you to give me a tender, responsive heart, but actually I'm really scared because I have to release control for you to do that. But when we realize that contrary to our common worldview, our life is not about accumulation, but it's about transformation, then we realize this is life. Life in the way of Jesus is to move forward into the unknown, believing and hoping for transformation, because actually what the way of Jesus is about is not about what the world wants it to be about. The world wants your life to be about gathering stuff. Now, it might be material stuff. That's the consumeristic worldview. But it's also about progress. It's also about status, right? Careerism. It's about accumulating. When I get to the end of my life, I will be X amount of acronyms after my name. I will be X dollar amount salary. I will have retirement fund. I will have kids. It's an accumulation mindset. You gather things around yourself, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, to hide their nakedness and their shame. And you put it all over yourself, and at the end, you're something. But Jesus says, it's about transformation. Life is a road. And in that road, it's about becoming complete in your character. Jesus takes his disciples on the road. And in the road, he just says, this is it. You don't need anything. All you need is my words. Come, let's go. He takes 12 disciples and they go on a journey. Most of the gospel story is a journey of Jesus walking around. And in fact, when he sends the disciples out, he tells them, take nothing. Take literally nothing. This is not a journey of accumulation. They go, Jesus, who's the greatest? He goes, status doesn't exist in my kingdom. It's not about accumulation. It's about transformation. That gets us to the next piece of this story. Okay, so first, the facts of your life are not the truth of your life. 
The truth of your life is given by Jesus in his words, and you learn to follow him by walking. You learn the path by walking. You gotta live faith out to figure faith out. You can't read faith in a book and say, that's me, I do that. I do that, oh, oh, how does it work? Oh no, just go read this thing I read, that's how it works. No, I wanna know how it works for you. What does it look like in your life? You've got to live faith out to figure faith out. And the destination is found by faithfully following Jesus in this way. And so that everything that happens along the path is a gift to help us to learn the process better. Everything that happens along the path with Jesus is a gift that helps us to translate. If all we have are his words, then every moment of our life is an act of translation of saying, how are the words of Jesus interpreting my reality? That is how I should then live. Well, that's crazy. That's scary. That's hard work. My actions matter because they show how I'm interpreting my reality. And I have to interpret that reality with my faith. But I don't want to live with faith. Right? I don't want to live depending on Jesus. I actually live so that I don't have to depend on Jesus. Right? I build up things around me and I accumulate so that I don't have to rely on the unknown, so that I can be totally sure with what I have that I can get to the end of wherever that road goes. But James says it's it's a testing. And we go, oh, testing that. You're just trying to get me. You're testing me so that when I fail, you can condemn me. But Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation in Christ. So what is the test? The test is like we test our kids in school. Why do you test a kid in school? Do you test them so you can punish them? You a teacher tests a student to see where they are so they can focus on where they need growth. A good teacher test the student. Think of like being a tutor, a one-on-one -on -one tutor. You test them to see where they're at. And you go, you're weak here, here, you're strong here, let's focus here, let's get some growth happening. If the trials of your life and your reactions where you miss the mark are Jesus actually saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You're getting so down on yourself, the arrows are all over the place, and you say, I'm nobody. I said, you're somebody. We've got areas for growth, let's, let's work on it together. How different of a paradigm is that for failure? Now, instead of avoiding failure, I learn how to fail well in the name of Jesus. And this community helps me fail well so that we can grow in our identity in Christ. Eugene Peterson, in his translation of this text, says this, consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides, you know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So that, I don't like the sound of that. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you can become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. Okay, I can, I'm not even supposed to get out of it prematurely. 
being just living in the suck is part of how I'm going to grow to be like Jesus. And to run from it is actually not part of the process. You've got to go through it. We've been talking about this a lot in our journey from pain to joy. Because the reality is, as James K. Smith says, we are what we worship. We are what we worship. We are learning to hit bullseyes in our life, and we're hitting really good bullseyes. The problem is, sin is that we're hitting really good bullseyes on things that aren't the target. And we actually think we're great, and Jesus goes, may say, I never knew you, right? Because we're shooting at the wrong targets. Whew, condemning. But we're not condemned. That's the tension. See, I go, oh my gosh, I'm so bad. And Jesus says, no, you're not. I love you. Now you see? Now let's go. Walk with me on the journey. Every experience we have in our life is in some way formational. We are spiritually formed and malformed by everything we pay attention to and desire, every pursuit, every dream we foster is indicating what we worship. And so it's biblical to even be testing all of these pursuits. It's not just te the testing happens in the trials, but let me show you something else interesting. This is Ecclesiastes, which is like a trip if you haven't read it in a while. I said in my heart, this is the wise king. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with every pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine. My heart is still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on a folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. This is a guy who's testing everything. He's saying, I believe that everything is formational. That everything is directing me in my worship. And I'm looking at wine and having a good time and partying and laughter and I'm looking at all of it and I'm saying none of that gets me any further at the end of the day. It's all vanity. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. All like good stuff but it's all vanity. Everything under the sun. Without Jesus this is, this is what, read the book of Ecclesiastes and this is the bottom line. Without Jesus, dust to dust. Without Jesus, there's no point. Without Jesus, it's just as confusing the day you're born as the day you die. That's the point of Ecclesiastes. Jesus is the fulfillment, the meaning, the real target. Because you're going to walk out the doors today and the world's gonna assault you with things to worship. And you can very quickly buy into any number of things that they're selling you, tribes that they're welcoming you into. But Ecclesiastes shows us none of that, none of that at the end of our life is going to bring us into wholeness. Instead, we have to rock, walk the road with Jesus. And ironically, 
Jesus, yeah, this is how much Jesus blows my mind. He walked the road to himself with us. Jesus is the road, walking the road to himself. Now you ask, okay, John, how is that possible? Jesus was going where in the journey of the gospels? Where does he end up at the end? He ends up in Jerusalem at the temple. What happens? Jesus becomes the temple. The temple curtain is ripped. And Jesus is where the presence of God dwells. And then it goes into all of us. Jesus is the presence and he's walking the road with us. And we are in his presence and he's bringing us into his presence. And that is the story of our life on earth. We are walking with God's presence, heading in to God's presence. And we don't need anything but Jesus. You got to live your faith life out to figure your faith life out. What that means is that faith is inherently experiential. That's why older Christians are such an asset to younger Christians. Because they can sit down with you and say, read it, definitely read it. I read it, keep reading it. This is what it's felt like for me. It's gonna feel different for you because it's your own experience of faith. And the only way you will find the path is by walking it. That's why wise people can be so frustrating, right? Because you go, tell me all the answers. And they're like, you just gotta go do it. <laughs> and you're like, no, like, I don't wanna blow it. Tell me the, no, you just have to go do it and do it well. They can tell you don't make this mistake like I made. They can tell you all those things, but the reality is you just gotta go do it well. And our faith must be lived out to be truly known. I can know that stuff when I read it on some level up here, but I don't know Ecclesiastes until I pursue my own vanity projects and get to the end of the day and realize they didn't fulfill me. Now I've lived that out experientially. I've gotten the trophy. I've gotten the accolades. And I go to sleep at night in the hotel room and I go, I'm still lonely. Now I understand Ecclesiastes. A German theologian, Rudolf Boltmann, said the redemptive acts of God can never become objective events of the past. They can only be present events of my existence. That's called experiential faith. The, the stories I read in the Bible are not stories of history. They are my story. And I am living them out. I am living out the word of God. They are present events of my existence. They impact me right now. They are not something locked in a box in the past that I can optionally open for their good treasures for me. They all influence me. Everything you read about Israel and about the church has an impact in a story for your life right now. It holds a promise that is useful for your present act of existence. It's just, it's all interconnected. This is the mystery of faith. You can't borrow someone else's faith. So, so I read Proverbs 4.23 on Beth's wall. I then promptly went up and wrote it on a thing on my fridge and it's there. It can stay on my fridge and it won't change me. I can put the words up on my fridge and it won't change me. I can't just borrow 
whatever prompted Beth to put that on her wall and have her face. I have to read those words. And when I read them, bring them into my heart and say, God, what does Proverbs 4.23 have for me today? Can I check my heart? How is it steering my life? And in that present moment, I'm experiencing and building a story of my faith by actually letting the words influence me. And so then my trials can be counted for joy in James because I'm taking it in and I'm living that faith out. I'm walking it out on the road with Jesus in the experiences of my life. And that is what it means to live in the identity of Christ. That's what it means. We're going to use this word a lot in the next season. Do you have an identity in Christ? Are you living out of your identity in Christ? Because here's the reality. In, in our house, we've, we've been in a, a, a stage of transition, transformation. We're going to be moving this summer to another place in town. There's all sorts of things going on in our life, schedule changes, figuring out work schedules, figuring out who we're growing into be. Megan and I are growing in our life. As you grow in your marriage, you look up sometimes at the other person, you go, I realize I don't actually know you right now. Like you've changed and I've changed. And I need to meet you and learn you and get to know you. And that's actually a good thing. But we've looked at each other with our habits and how we dress and what we're doing. And sometimes we just say to each other, uh, it's not that you don't know who I am. I actually don't know who I am. If I'm really honest with myself, I don't know who I am right now. I'm in the wild west of my life. I, I don't know what I want. Like, what do you want to do tonight? I don't know. Uh, why don't we do this? Uh, okay. I mean, like, I actually don't know what I want. I realized once I got to the evening and had my relaxing time, I don't have a plan. And I actually don't know. I really want to be fulfilled, though. Like, if I'm really honest, I want to be whole. And so I'm going to pick a thing, but I actually don't want to say my thing because I'm worried that if we do my thing that doesn't fulfill us, then that won't be good. So why don't we do your thing? But then we do your thing that doesn't fulfill us. And then I'm always like, well, we always do your thing. Like, the, the point is, like, we're always in this space of feeling confused because our identity is not who we are set to become. The world says you become you. And the Bible says you become Jesus. And it's like, shoot. Well, at least that gives me something. Tonight, I want to become like Jesus. Right? That can be still a lot of different things. It's not what movie you watch. It's how you act, right? It's not what information is shown to you. It's how you translate what you take in. There's so many layers to it. But at least I got something, right? As a Christian, I go, I don't know who I am, but I know and I'm learning who Jesus is. And that's my target. Jesus is pretty intense about it. On the road, he has many conversations. And this one goes like this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds in the air have their nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But that man said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's, Jesus doesn't mince words. There's one target. And any other thing that you bring up that's not the target of the identity of Jesus, of the kingdom of God, of living out your faith experientially, you will waste your time. You will be wasting your time. So I'm just not gonna entertain it. Don't look back. You want the peace that passes all understanding? You wanna count your trials as joy? You wanna grow and have areas of your heart exposed and see where your faith needs work? Follow me. The same pastor who talked about the faith and the facts and truth thing said that in our minds we have what she calls cognitive distortions. I like it because it's a memorable set of words. It's kind of two really big words together, but they're very memorable. I'm experiencing a cognitive distortion right now. I am not interpreting reality accurately. Help me, <laughs> right? Like We don't use those words, but we use words like you're believing lies. Same kind of idea, right? When we can actually say to someone we care about or say to ourselves in our own thought life, I'm believing a lie right now, that's major progress. That is living in to the identity of Jesus. When we can say to fear, there is no fear in love. When we can say to despair, I have hope in Jesus that transcends everything. When we can say to temptation, I don't need anything because I have everything I need on the road with Jesus. That's living in our identity in Christ. So when we grumble, it exposes how we're attached to things other than the main target. When we listen to temptations, when we go to things to cope that are not part of Jesus's way, that shows where our attachments are. And those attachments are huge. They're huge. You can spend weeks, spend weeks just talking about attachments. Romans 5, 3 through 5, just a couple verses here that, that basically uh, reaffirm what James is saying. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. First Peter 1, 6 through 7, And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through its, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. This is what maturity looks like. So what this tells us, if we're thinking about cognitive distortions and we're thinking about living this out, and we're thinking about how, John, do I then do this? I just want to tee off a few ideas. We'll get into these as we go into James more. But the first is something um, Tristan Collins wrote in her book, Why Emotions Matter. She said, emotions are like a dashboard. This was really helpful to me. Emotions are like a dashboard. So depending on how you grew up in the faith, you grew up 
one of one of two ways. I'm willing to bet you grew up this way. Your emotions lie to you. You need to dismiss them. Do the word and like stop paying so much attention to every everything you feel, right? Those are lies from the pit of hell. Fear, anger, all of that stuff. You need to rise above that. And you need to be a man or a woman or whatever and just blaze forward in that stoic, like intense way. I was definitely taught that. Some people are taught your emotions are everything. They are you, you know, just like feelings. Just obey your feelings. The emotions are indicators. They're dashboard lights that go up that say your gas is low, that say you need to pull over, that say you need to slow down. These are dashboard indicators. And actually, when you understand them in that way, you realize my emotions and my feelings are given to me by Jesus, created in the Imago Dei. He created these for a reason. These are actually a grace for me. They indicate where I'm at and what's going on. They are like symptoms that show me where maybe work needs to be done, where I need to pause, where I am growing and maturing. These are test results that have come out and the teacher's going, growth area, growth area, right? Let me just give you a case study real quick. This is, a, this is our dinner table, all right? The dinner table is, man, it's a space when you have kids. We have a little tiny table in our little house and we all gather around and we're all like, you know, just like the, the feet are touching each other. The people, their voices, you're too loud, quiet. You know, like it's just, it's so intense. And we have all of these things that happen during, and here's the, suddenly there can be like a set of dominoes, okay? Uh, I, first of all, I always go into dinner, like this is a picture of my soul. I was going to dinner with this like dream that it'll be a great family dinner. Like every, it just never dies. It'll always be like, we're gonna sit down, we're gonna have a great meal, we're gonna have a good conversation. I've got some ideas, I wanna hear how your school day went. And I always sit down and I go like, how did it go? It's like, let's talk about the day. And then like, like somebody is bringing in, maybe me, their frustration and they're lashing out in some way. Somebody talks over somebody, somebody gets interrupted. And then suddenly this domino effect happens. Frustration sets in, somebody gets shut down. Somebody's like looking down at their phone all of a sudden. Somebody's getting up to get a refill and like is just sitting off in the distance. Somebody is, uh, there's just so many things that can go wrong. And what we tend to do is we go, okay, uh, that was a really bad experience. That dinner didn't go well, let's troubleshoot that. Maybe like we shouldn't have phones at the dinner table. Right? Or maybe we should like, we look at this first level of symptoms and we say, we, we need to start to dismantle this. But the problem is actually like so far down below that. It's like a diet problem, okay? If, if you have uh, an issue with your health, you can say, oh, I can't, I can't uh, do X, Y, Z symptom, that's a problem. But usually what it comes down to is a diet. And for us, it's a diet of the mind right? It's a diet of the mind. And if I get all the way down into my heart, I can realize that like maybe actually my vision of the dinner table is part of the problem. Like my expectation going into it is adding to my frustration. That these emotions that happen are, are uh, symptoms 
that are indicating to me that something's wrong, but the, the problem is way down at the bottom. And so what I have to do is I have to repent and I have to rebuild reality from the ground up. And that takes a lot of work. That is not just changing a little thing at the dinner table. It is going, okay, uh, I'm after something here that's causing me to spiral and I need to get to the bottom of it. I'm looking for the dinner table to fill my lack in my life. I'm looking for the family experience to bring wholeness to me. And when I don't get it, I start to misbehave too. How many times when you have something happen that goes wrong in your life and you let that give you permission to like spiral out of control? I didn't get that thing. And so now I'm going to spiral. And so when James has this handbook for wholeness, he's saying this, the bottom line, to reach the end of life in the arms of Christ is to lack nothing. It's to lack nothing. The thing that I've said over and over um, to help build my sense of wholeness in my identity in Christ is to adopt the words that were said to Jesus at his baptism. You are my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. If in that moment where everything's spiraling out of control at the dinner table, I can firmly cling to the knowing that despite all my failures and everyone else's failures at the table, like I am your beloved, in whom you are well pleased. Now I'm not reaching for anything to become holy. I'm not reaching out to grab all of that stuff. That I'm actually whole and complete, even amidst the chaos. And I don't have to perform or do anything. Last story on the road, and then we'll wrap this up. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Some of you are visual people. This is a, an, an understanding of this that I learned this week. Martha is operating what we call a bounded set. Okay? There are behaviors, beliefs, and a program. If I'm inside of those and do those things, I'm in. Right? It's a performance-based operation. A lot of churches have operated as a bounded set. If you believe this, if you be a member in this way, if you uh, come to these programs, if you're involved in perform in this way, even though you might be an anxious mess, but with much service, like Martha, you will be in. That's the bounded set thinking. We've got to get out of that kind of thinking about our faith. Instead, what Jesus is looking at, what James is talking about is centered set thinking. Look at where the arrows are going. The point is no matter where you are, if your arrows pointed at Jesus, we're on the same team. We're on the same team. We're working together. 
And the point then is on an individual level for all of us to help and go, ah, you're having a really hard time right now. I think it's because the arrow's way over here, right? I can't get you to change it, but I'm just gonna help maybe point that out, challenge that. Or for us in our own self to go, oh, I am, I am anxious from much serving, distracted with much serving as Martha is, and maybe I just need to go sit with Jesus for a minute. Maybe I need to focus and get the arrow in the right place. Stop all of the doing and let Jesus steer my life. Hebrews 12 says he is the author and perfecter of our faith. So I need to sit and let him tell my story to me. And his story is this. You are loved. You are loved. Augustine wrote in his confessions, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Martha, very far from her own self does not know what she needs. Mary goes, I may not bring a lot to the table, but I know that I need Jesus. Do I believe that I am beloved? Do I realize that by making mistakes, whether it's succeeding or failing in life, whether it's whatever it is, that I am still in a space where God says, I want you, I'm teaching you, this is about the journey, grow with me. Then we are finally understanding the mystery of the grace of Jesus and its gift to our soul. And I just wanna, wanna give you four things to think about. When Jesus went to the cross, there are four things about going to the cross, four, four truths about going to the cross that prove what James is talking about, that prove that Jesus is the fulfillment and answer to our broken life. The first one is this, Jesus lives out the journey he has for us by example. He does what he asks us to do and he shows us that eternal life, that undefeatable wholeness is the result in his resurrected body. So the first thing he does is the cross shows us that Jesus lives out the good life by example. The second is he names it as truth. How does he do that? Only God can defeat death. So if there's something that can travel through death to the other side that no other man can do, that thing, that's truth. His resurrection proves that he is king of all life. And so what he says, for lack of a better word, goes, right? He is the authority to define the good life because he is the son of God. But, the, but then the cross does two other things. He demonstrates the infinite depth of his love, that he would go to the maximum extent of life and beyond it, beyond where anyone else can go, and his love would travel with him to death. It exists so deep in his heart that it is impossible to break free, even with the threat of death from his love. And then lastly, what we all know, he takes on the sins of this world. We all know it up here. We all know that one, right? Jesus took your sins to the cross and hides them in us in his glory. But what that means in this paradigm on the road 
is that he is giving us the gift of heaven in the chaos, the gift of grace, something we can never earn, which is the promise of wholeness that we can't define apart from him. And he's giving us a pathway to it, despite our long history of failure. Jesus gives us life, to which we pray, Jesus, perfect human and teacher, son of God, wounded healer, forgiver of my sin, heal today.